You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I have mainly been working since last week, and this episode is being recorded super early on Friday afternoon, post-fighting with my building to fix my garbage disposal that's been busted for over a week because it's one of my besties' birthdays this weekend, and I've got a mini road trip ahead of me to look forward to tomorrow, so yesterday, in regards to the release of this episode. So I have to record early. I did not record as early as I wanted to, so I'm not sleeping tonight. But yeah... Fun week. Glad it's over. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Barbie. I was a maniac and did the Barbenheimer twofer on Thursday night, but I work for the studio that released Oppenheimer, so I don't review, if you're new, movies that come out by my employer just to be safe, but you should really go see it because it is a whole-ass masterpiece, but anyway, Barbie. Now, I think I liked Barbie. I'm pretty sure I liked Barbie. My problem is, and it's a problem I have quite often with just movies in general these days because trailers are bad, and that's that Warner Brothers was pretty deceptive about the tone that this film took on overall within its marketing. So I was not mentally prepared to see the movie that I did. The film also had too many storylines, one of which could have been completely lifted out, and the film would have been exactly the same. But otherwise, it was pretty good. It's not what I expected, but when it was good, it was really good. I liked the meta jokes. It just wasn't what the trailers would have you think it is. And I also think the critics are hyping this one up a little too much, but that's just my opinion, which is what a podcast is most of the time, let's be honest. So real quick strike updates. This turned into a very big episode. I think the script is like 20 pages long. So lots of stuff to get into today. But the gist of the strike stuff is that it's still happening. Everyone is pointing fingers at everybody else. Everybody's pissed. And force majeure for the writers is going to hit one week from the release of this episode, if I'm counting correctly, which will void out all of the writers' contracts with all of the studios. In short, no writers will be getting any money except residuals and until the strike is over because all of their contracts that pay out on a schedule will now be voided because they haven't been turning in work for the last 90 days or whatever the stipulation in their contract is. Most of them are 90 days. They also can't collect unemployment at this time, at least in California, because of unemployment laws. So it's what I guess the studios were waiting for and why they haven't gone back to the table. It was this. It was for the force majeure. So maybe after the 90 days, we'll start seeing the studios maybe going back to the table with the writers. I doubt it because I think they're going to try and just starve them out, which, you know, not not the greatest uh, move in the world. Definitely the cruelest. But that's where we're at. So let's get into this week's topic. 
This week, we're looking into one of the most famous conspiracies in American history, which has a tie to one of the greatest film directors of all time. And if you didn't read the title of this episode, that is the Stanley Kubrick moon landing conspiracy theory. Today, we'll briefly cover the space race between the U.S. and the USSR, the origins of the moon landing conspiracy theories, some bonker stuff people believe in regards to the Kubrick of it all, and explain several ways this has been debunked over the years. Just right off the top, I remember saying briefly last week, I was worried I wasn't going to be able to find enough content on this. This had way more information and content than I would have ever guessed, and just way more layers. There were times in the past like week or so that I felt like like I was Charlie Day in that gif where he's smoking a cigarette and pointing at the board with all the newspaper clippings and string. And at times this even had me, who very much believes we went to the moon, questioning everything before facts ruled the day once more. This is crazy. This is absolutely crazy What's how deep some of this goes. I was very surprised to say the least. So I won't tease it anymore. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Now it is time to take longer strides. Time for a great new American enterprise. Time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. I believe we possess all the resources and talents necessary, but the facts of the matter are that we have never made the national decisions or marshaled the national resources required for such leadership. We have never specified long-range goals on an urgent time schedule or managed our resources and our time so as to ensure their fulfillment. I therefore ask the Congress, above and beyond the increases I have earlier requested for space activities, to provide the funds which are needed to meet the following national goals. First. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. Despite being reluctant allies during World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union did not turn that relationship into a peacetime one. The conflicts between the two nations would become known as the Cold War, and one of the rivalries to come out of this Cold War was the Space Race. The space race originated with a ballistic missile-based nuclear arms race between the two nations following World War II. For more on that, see the third hour of Oppenheimer. Seriously, go see it. After, and quite a bit during as well, the two countries had scrambled to get as many of the German missile and rocket engineers out of the country as possible, as Germany was the leader in quantum physics and basically things around the things that go splody splode in the science world at that time. This was done in order to beef up the Soviet Union and U.S.'s weapons arsenals. This would ultimately morph into who could get things into space first, as that was seen as the next frontier of battle. So much for the bomb that would end all wars. The space race officially kicked off on July 30th, 1955, when the United States announced its intent to launch artificial satellites into the atmosphere. Four days later, the Soviet Union responded by declaring that they would also launch a satellite, quote, in the near future. 
the Soviets won this first milestone when Sputnik 1 was launched on October 4, 1957. The U.S. achieved this feat four months later. The whole race really kicked off when the USSR sent the first human, Yuri Gagarin, into space on April 12, 1961. Gagarin became an international celebrity as a result. The U.S. would send their first man into space with Freedom 7, which launched just three weeks later. So close. These victories were followed by a string of early firsts achieved by the Soviets over the next few years. I'm sure I don't have to tell the Americans in the listenership pool that America wasn't super stoked about being shown up by the Soviets. So on May 25th, 1961, President John F. Kennedy asked Congress to commit to the goal of, quote, landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth before the end of the decade. You heard a chunk of this speech at the first break. This speech would launch the Apollo program to achieve this, with the Gemini program launching as well to develop the tech. As a result of this promise, both countries began developing launch vehicles, with the U.S. successfully deploying the Saturn V, which was large enough to send a three-person orbiter and two-person lander to the moon. In 1965, the Soviets beat the U.S. to the first spacewalk, but the U.S. would be the first to dock two spacecrafts at the same time. After years of this back and forth, on July 16, 1969, Apollo 11 was launched, which landed the U.S. on the moon before the Soviet Union. The ride to the moon was anything but smooth, but the astronauts successfully touched down in the Eagle, which was the name of the lander, on July 20th. Neil Armstrong became the first man to walk on the moon, declaring that it was, quote, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. For the first time in the space race, the Soviets were not able to beat or immediately also achieve something the U.S. had done or vice versa. Several failed lunar landings were made by the country between 1969 and 1972, but the USSR just couldn't seem to get to the moon. As a result, the U.S. declared themselves the winner of the space race, but many have argued that putting a man into space at all, which the Soviets did first, was the greater achievement, so I guess it just depends on your school of thought on that one, as no official stakes were ever set in regards to the space race. Speaking as an American who was educated in America, we are obviously taught in school that the democratic U.S. land of the free home of the brave stuck it to those commie Russians and won the space race. After another six years of goofing off in space, by 1975, with relations slowly improving between the two countries, a joint space program between the U.S. and the USSR called the Apollo-Soyuz mission would see a U.S. and a Soviet space vehicle docking together in space. The commanders of the respective vehicles shook hands, becoming the first international handshake in space, which also symbolized the improvement of the relationships between the two two countries. But even though the history books around the world declare that July 20th, 1969 was the day man walked on the moon, there are some that believe that this was not the case. Put your tin hats on, everybody. It's conspiracy theory time. The first major book casting doubt about the legitimacy of the moon landing was written down in the self-published tome, We Never Went to the Moon, America's $30 Billion Swindle. 
This book was written by Bill Casing, a former U.S. Navy officer who'd worked at Rocketdyne starting in 1956, during the time the company was working on the Saturn V rocket. He was later the head of the technical publications unit at the company's propulsion-filled laboratory until 1963. So he was not working there when the Apollo 11 mission occurred. The litany of allegations in Casing's book effectively began making others also believe that the moon landings had been faked. The book claims that the chance of a successful mission to the moon was calculated to be 0.0017% while he worked for Rocketdyne, meaning that it would have been easier for NASA to fake the moon landings than to actually go there, in his opinion. Well, I mean, duh. If you're wondering what it was that Casing laid out in his book, well, worry no longer. Here's some of what he claimed was wrong with the landing footage, meaning it had to be a film and not a dispatch from the moon. First, the American flag the astronauts planted on the moon should not have appeared as if it were waving, as there was no air, and yet it is. There's only one source of light on the moon, the sun, yet the shadows of the astronauts fall in multiple directions, suggesting multiple light sources, like what you might find on a film set. If NASA had truly landed on the moon, it should have left an impression and markings where the jets fired during takeoff and landing. But none of this is seen in the video. You know what wouldn't have left an impression? A movie prop. Conspiracy theorists point out that it also looks like a C is written on one of the moon rocks, as if it came straight from a prop department. Also, how come no stars? We see no stars in any of the video. You know, where else you couldn't see stars? A movie set. And finally, if Neil Armstrong was the first man on the moon, then who was filming him coming down the ladder? Perhaps a director with his movie camera, of course. Logistically speaking, because of course people watched live both on TV and in person when the rocket launched on July 16th, Casing claims that the astronauts were removed from the rocket moments from takeoff, flown to Nevada, where a few days later they broadcast the moonwalk from the desert, not in a studio which he claimed earlier, but why let continuity get in the way? People also claim to have seen Neil Armstrong walking through a hotel lobby with a showgirl on each arm, and Aldrin was allegedly seen playing the slots in a casino. After the faked desert movie, they were then flown to Hawaii and put back inside the capsule after the splashdown, but before the cameras arrived. I feel like if you were going to try and keep this a secret, this is just stepping out of conspiracy land for a minute, you probably weren't letting the astronauts run wild in a hotel. And also, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, they just look like two random white dudes. But it's conspiracy time, so let's just overlook that for now, that two other white guys probably look like these very generic looking white guys. Or people are just, you know, lying. Building on Casing's claims, in 1980, the Flat Earth Society did not realize they'd been around for that long, further accused NASA of faking the moon landings, arguing that they were staged by Hollywood with Walt Disney Studios' participation based on a script by Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote the book 2001 A Space Odyssey, and directed by Stanley Kubrick, who had adapted Clarke's book into a major motion picture in 1968, just one year before we'd gone to the moon. 
folklorist, which what a cool sounding job, Linda Day, traces this specific part of the conspiracy theory to the release of writer-director Peter Himes' film Capricorn One from 1978, which is about a faked man journey to Mars in a spacecraft that looks pretty much identical to the Apollo 11 craft. The movie sowed about as much conspiracy mongering as Casings' book did and further cast doubt that the U.S. went to the moon for some people. Do they mention how Peter Himes could have possibly known this? No, of course they didn't. Dave further states that we can likely thank this level of conspiracy mongering and skepticism of the American people to the Watergate scandal, which was when the American people at large began to start seriously doubting the legitimacy of official documents and accounts of things given to them by the government or government officials. For those of you who aren't American or who were bad at history or just forgot, it happens. The Watergate scandal of 1972-1973 was that whole thing where it was revealed that President Richard Nixon's administration had had people break into the Watergate Hotel and into the Democratic Party's headquarters to steal intel and bug the telephones to gain intel to help him in the coming election. Nixon managed to distance himself from allegations of his involvement in the Watergate scandal enough to get reelected in 1972 because the American public at large believed him when he said he wasn't involved and had no knowledge other than what was basically in the press. Of course, Nixon not being involved in Watergate was revealed to be a lie, which was first revealed after a mysterious figure known as Deep Throat revealed that Nixon and his administration was in fact directly involved to the Watergate scandal to a Washington Post journalist. It also came out that Nixon and other high-ranking Republicans were funding an operation that would allow them to go through people's mail, break into their homes, and bug their telephones, all in the name of information gathering, which would lead to blackmailing. These people wouldn't have been criminals, they just would have been like rivals. This, I don't have to tell you, is super illegal. Long story short, after a series of attempts to block their release, the Supreme Court forced the release of a series of tapes that would become known as the White House tapes. These recordings proved that Nixon was directly involved in the Watergate scandal, and instead of being impeached, he opted to resign in disgrace in August of 1974 and was controversially pardoned by his successor, Gerald Ford. As a result of this series of lies, trust of the government began to tank and was at an all-time low in the late 70s, early 80s. Additionally, the Vietnam War hadn't helped with people's opinions or confidence in the U.S. government either. And in a world where the president could just lie to his people on TV, what else did that administration lie about? Nixon was, after all, the president at the time of the moon landing. And it's from this world that we get the Kubrick moon landing conspiracy theory. While Casing's book was the first major declaration that the U.S. hadn't gone to the moon, there were others before him that had had doubts. Some even went so far as to say that the U.S. never went to space at all when they said they did. As soon as the first capsules were sent into orbit, there were some people who began airing said skepticism. Clearly, this was just JFK trying to make the Soviets think we weren't as behind as we were technologically. But back in the days before the internet, they couldn't get online with other people and tell their nonsense at each other and then just get louder and dumber together. So this was a very, very fringe theory that people had, some people had. 
So while they believe the U.S. would not have been able to go to space, what the U.S. did have technological advancements over was the filmmaking industry. They were much further along in that technologically than anywhere else. I don't think there was anyone that was close at that particular time. So if we couldn't beat the USSR to the moon, we could at least make it look like we had. And conspiracy theorists believe that this was when the government turned to Stanley Kubrick. At the time he would have allegedly shot the fake moon landing, Stanley Kubrick was a renowned director, having gone from a successful photography career to a film one, becoming a borderline household name with his fifth film, 1960's Spartacus. From 1965 to 1968, he shot 2001 A Space Odyssey off of a script he co-wrote with the source material's author, Arthur C. Clarke. The film released in April 1968, just one month after Kubrick had shot his final frame of the film, which would give the director his only competitive Oscar win in his career, which was for visual effects. With that in mind, why would a man, obviously at the top of his field, who had been known in his early career for making anti-war films, allegedly assist in faking the moon landing, and why him anyway? The second question is easier to answer because, well, he was probably the only man in the world with the know-how at that time. Clark's story the film was based on, originally published in 1951, had predicted the man-made satellite, GPS, the space station, and even the smartphone, which had all been replicated pretty much flawlessly onto the silver screen by Kubrick. In fact, Kubrick had just made a whole-ass realistic space movie with no visual effects. They were all like models and just creative camera trickery. Hell, his fake moon set looked better than the Apollo 11 footage of the actual moon. Nobody had done anything like this movie before, so he was the natural choice. Which leads us to the first part of the question. Why would he agree to do it? That's a little bit hard to answer practically, as Kubrick was notoriously private, so this is the most theorizing of this particular part. There's always the obvious one, patriotism. Why not? But he could have also done it for money, enough to financially cover every single film in his career. That meant artistic freedom for life, and what filmmaker doesn't dream of that? Or maybe they just had some good old-fashioned dirt on him. It was just after all the HUAC stuff, so God only knows what they had on people back then. So, yeah. But in reality, we can't say for sure. No one knows why he would have done it if he did it. If this conspiracy theory is to be believed, when the astronauts were taken out of the rocket and then sent to the desert, Kubrick was there to call the shots. But the story doesn't end there for the Kubrick side of things. If another part of this conspiracy theory is to be believed, as the years went by, Kubrick's big secret had him feeling guilty and wishing he could tell the world the truth about the moon landing. Fearing that he would be quote-unquote taken care of if he tried to come forward, he instead put coded messages revealing the truth of the moon landing into his upcoming film for people to decipher later. Conspiracy theorists believe that he did this within the 1980 film The Shining. The majority of the chaos that you're about to hear was manically put together by a dude named Jay Widener in his sure article, though his writings read more like the ramblings of someone who just took several bumps of cocaine, called Secrets of the Shining or How the Moon Landing Nearly Cost Stanley Kubrick His Marriage and His Life. What he laid out in that and what I have painstakingly 
mistakenly tried to make coherent is essentially what people who believe in this conspiracy theory believe is what is hidden within The Shining. We're about to go full tinfoil hat here, so buckle up. I try to keep my opinion out of these things as much as I can, but frankly, it's batshit bananas. And I took some of the more batshit things out because, frankly, I sat here trying to make sense of it. I took time out of my finite amount on this planet to try and figure out what the hell he was talking about and came up with nothing. So I just took that stuff out because I'm like, I don't need to waste your time with that either. So just keep in mind that as crazy as all of this that you're about to hear sounds to you, I made this make sense. (laughs) First off, A major thing conspiracy theorists point at to prove that Kubrick hid messages in The Shining is in the ways in which Kubrick changed the source material, which was Stephen King's 1977 novel. The changes were so numerous that King has gone on the record, stating it's one of his least favorite of all the adaptations of his novels. Based on this, conspiracy theorists posit, why would Kubrick, a notoriously detailed-oriented filmmaker, make those changes if he wasn't trying to convey a secret message? Here we go. There are two main characters in the film, according to Widener, Jack Torrance and his son, Danny. These two characters represent the two sides of Stanley Kubrick himself. Jack is the practical, rational guy who wants to be a great artist and who is willing to do anything to accomplish this goal, like getting a ton of money from the government to fund all your films in return for faking the moon landing. Physically, Jack has black hair like Kubrick and even smokes the same brand of cigarettes. Danny, meanwhile, is the childlike side of Kubrick, the real artist within. Danny also has a tendency to tell people things that should be kept secret, like secret moon landing secrets. I don't know why I sound German when I get cheeky, but I do. The first major scene in the film shows Jack cutting a deal with the manager of the Overlook Hotel. The deal between Jack and the manager of The Overlook is that Jack can write or for Kubrick make movies as much as he wants so long as he quote unquote takes care of The Overlook. So America and the secret of the moon landing for Kubrick. According to Widener, there's a great deal of symbolism at play in this scene to drive this point home. The manager of the Overlook, representing the president, I guess, is wearing red, white, and blue. The manager also has an American eagle right behind his head, quote-unquote, symbolizing that the power behind him is the eagle, so America. Not only that, but Eagle was also the name of the lunar lander on the Apollo 11 mission. If that wasn't enough clues, on the desk is an American flag. Jack, his wife Wendy, and Danny soon move into the hotel, staring down a long, cold winter. Representing the Cold War, perhaps? At first, Jack loves the hotel. and Kubrick land, this means that he's proud of what he's done and that he's tricked everybody. But Jack begins to suffer from writer's block and insomnia. And the large foyer where Jack is set up to write over a fireplace is a Native American artistic motif that Widener claims looks like rockets taking off. Conspiracy theorists believe that the Native American motifs throughout the film are alluding to the fact that not only is the hotel built on stolen indigenous land, but so is America, because the Overlook is supposed to represent America. Anyway, during their first day in the hotel, Danny has a vision of the previous caretaker's daughters, and he sees that they are twins. 
The previous caretaker's daughters were not twins in the Stephen King novel. Side note, I know we're in conspiracy theory land right now, but they are sisters, not twins in the film as well, but everyone gets this wrong. They are noticeably two different sizes, people. They're not far apart in age, but they are not twins, and they were not meant to be twins. The ghost children beckon to Danny, the alleged innocent artist of Kubrick, to play with them, quote, forever and ever. Danny flees. Little hints throughout the film will also show the Overlook trying to get Danny to play, so be involved with the moon landing. One such instance involves Danny playing with trucks in the hall when a ball rolls toward him. As Danny stands up, we see he is wearing a sweater with a rocket knitted on the front, along with the words, Apollo 11. According to Widener, what we see next is a representation of the launch of Apollo 11, with Danny getting up and walking toward and eventually entering room 237, where the previous caretaker killed his family, and it is also the room that is pretty much central to the haunting of the hotel at large, at least in the film. What happens next is crucial to understanding everything else that happens in the film, according to Widener. You see, in the novel, the bad room where the bad things happen, primarily, is room 217. In the film, it's room 237. Seems like a pretty odd change until you factor in that the moon, on average, is 237,000 miles from the Earth. Is this a hint? The conspiracy theory claims that room 237 represents the set for the moon landing where nothing is real. Weiner backs up this claim, stating that Kubrick allegedly told the press that he changed the room number from 217 to 237 because the owners of the hotel, which was standing in for the Overlook, did not want customers not wanting to stay in room 217. But the hotel also has a room 237, so it makes no sense to change the room to that then. Stepping out of conspiracy land for a second, I'm guessing it had more to do with like where the room was situated within a hallway of the hotel and the look Kubrick wanted for shooting or 237 or on the hotel side, maybe 237 was a less nice room compared to like 217 and the hotel wanted to make sure they could still book the nicer room or like the view was different. I'm guessing it had something more to do with that. But of course, that room is incredibly popular because people like me are around to be like, I want to stay in the scary room. Anyway, the next time we see Danny, he's been physically injured and his sweater has been ripped, presumably by the malevolent force in room 237. Wendy, Jack's wife, thinks that Jack did it, and in a way she is right, based on the conspiracy theory, because Danny got hurt because of Jack's decision to bring them all here, which in Kubrick land means to make the deal of faking the moon landing. So basically, Kubrick's practical side has hurt the true artist inside of him. Jesus Christ. Frustrated, Jack goes to the bar located in the gold room. Stressed, Jack whispers to no one that he would sell his soul for a drink. It is then that Jack meets the real manager of the Overlook Hotel when a mysterious man appears behind the bar. His name is Lloyd, and he is the bartender of the Overlook Hotel from a previous era. He's a ghost. Jack later goes to room 237 and sees some weird shit. Because room 237 is symbolically the lunar set for Apollo 11, Jack has to lie to Wendy, who I don't think I've mentioned yet is supposed to be a manifestation of Kubrick's wife, Christina, about what is going on in the room because Kubrick had to lie to her about what was going on with the moon landing. After this, Jack begins to deteriorate physically. 
He is growing a scraggly beard and is not combing his hair, two things that Stanley Kubrick was known for during the production of 2001. In fact, theorists claim that Jack is beginning to look a lot like Stanley Kubrick at the time of shooting 2001 as the film goes on. You see, or don't, early 2001 A Space Odyssey production photos show a youthful and unbearded Kubrick with combed hair. But photos taken three years later, near the end of the production, Kubrick was a physical mess because of the stress of the film and, according to conspiracy theorists, the stress of faking the moon landing. Never mind the fact that the film was shot from 1965 to 1968 and was released over a year before the moon landing took place, and Kubrick is hardly the first director to get a little haggard making a film. Just take a look at uh, Francis Ford Coppola on the first day of shooting Apocalypse Now and the last day of shooting Apocalypse Now. Later, Wendy wants to read the book that Jack is suddenly working so diligently on since he's seen the ghost and kind of been let in on the secrets of the Overlook Hotel. Jack angrily rejects this proposal and demands that Wendy stay out of his writing room. She can't know the truth. But of course, Wendy soon finds out what Jack's been furiously writing. According to the conspiracy theorists, it is here that we get a message that all of this grasping at straws they've been doing for the better part of two hours is accurate. When Wendy looks at the typewriter, every single one of the hundreds of pages that Jack has been writing is one sentence repeated over and over. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. This line is not in the book. Widener claims that the word all actually stands for A11 or Apollo 11. So that must mean that what's really been written over and over is, quote, Apollo 11 work and no play makes Kubrick a dull boy. It also alludes that Christina found out about the ruse, of which there's no proof in any form, but why let facts get in the way of a good conspiracy theory? Frightened by this revelation, Wendy, Christina, wants Jack, Kubrick, to quit his job for the hotel, America. Jack angrily replies, quote, This is so typical of you. I've made an agreement. I have obligations to my employers. Danny then uses his psychic ability, known as The Shining, to contact the Overlook's cook, Dick Halloran, in Florida, which is where Apollo 11 launched, for help. Dick taught Danny how to use his psychic ability at the beginning of the film. Dick travels from Florida to Colorado, where Jack almost immediately kills him as soon as he arrives at the Overlook. This event also doesn't happen in the book. Weiner believes that Halloran is a representation of a person that Kubrick revealed the fake moon landing to. Because of that, Halloran had to die. Who this is, Weidner cannot say, and nothing bad ever happened to Christina in that regard either. But taking all of this into account, Weidner and the other conspiracy theorists are certain that 1980's The Shining is Kubrick's way of letting people know that he did indeed fake the moon landing. Head spinning yet? Okay, now take your tinfoil hats off. Let's get to debunking. First, here's how all of Casing's accusations are debunked that I didn't already debunk earlier. The flag appeared to be waving because it had a crossbeam behind it. Knowing the flag would not wave in the vacuum of space and wanting the stars and stripes on full display in the videos, engineers fitted the pole with a crossbeam on which to hang the flag. If it looks like it's waving, that's because Buzz Aldrin was twisting the pole into the lunar soil that's going to make it, you know, it's going to make everything shake a little bit. 
there are multiple points of light on the lunar surface because there were actually multiple sources of light during the landings. Yes, the light came from the sun, but also the Earth, the lander, and the astronauts' spacesuits. Did people really think they were not going to send those people to space without any other kind of light sources? Clearly not, but you know. They they gave them, I mean, at least they had to like have flashlights, right? My goodness. Then the moon is about one fifth the gravity of Earth. So landing the lander would just be like giving it a little kiss. It wouldn't have been like a huge like smack into the surface. That is why there was no blast crater when the lander gets to the surface of the moon. Because there was so much less gravity on the moon, it also took far less energy to push away and escape the atmosphere as well. Think of it as pushing off the bottom of a swimming pool. As for the sea and the props people claim to see in the footage, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, humans like to look for patterns and faces and things, and a sea isn't exactly the most complex shape in the world. It's a sea. It's a half circle. Come on. And then there are no stars in the footage because the moonwalks were done during the lunar morning. And just like on Earth, you won't see stars when the sun is out because it is too bright. And finally, a camera had been mounted to the side of the lunar module, which is what captured Neil Armstrong descending the ladder. And then when it comes to the Kubrick of it all, while 2001 was a pioneer of special effects, it was a far cry from what would have been needed to fake a whole-ass moon landing. But to play devil's advocate, what would have been needed? I got the following info, just to be totally transparent, off the Sky History website, since they did the heavy lifting on debunking the Kubrick theory. And I honestly don't know that much about old TV tech. I know my knowledge is more in, in film, not video, which is different. So I need I needed the, the handhold for this. But in my opinion, we can pretty much debunk Kubrick's involvement based on the knowledge presented herein. If anything, it would have been a 0.0017% or whatever it was chance that they could have successfully faked a moon landing. Back in 1969, there were only two mediums of taking down moving pictures. The first was film stock. The second was video, which was an electronic method of recording images on magnetic tape, the latter of which was what was necessary to be able to broadcast to televisions because the information is magnetic and therefore can be sent through antennas. That means the moon landing would have had to have been beamed into television sets all over the world via video. With that in mind, the footage would have more than likely been shot with 30 frames per second video, which was the television standard at the time. However, the moon landing was recorded at 10 frames per second in SSTV, which stands for Slow Scan Television, with a specially mounted camera on the Apollo lander. This method was mainly used by amateur radio operators to transmit static images via radio signals. Obviously, they were sending these images from 237,000 miles away, so that was pretty much the only way they were going to be able to do it. That would mean that Kubrick would have needed to use that exact camera when filming. But of course, if he was doing this for the United States and working with NASA, they would have obviously been able to provide him with that. So 
that's, you know, not the sturdiest argument, but the other stuff is. And then further, the footage shot of Apollo 11 showed Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walking around in the low gravity environment of the moon's surface, just kind of bouncing around. Conspiracy theorists have argued that the astronauts were in fact made to look like that by using slow motion. In 1969, there were only two ways to make slow motion video. You either had to shoot at normal speed and playback at slow speed or shoot at a faster speed and playback at a normal speed. The latter is known as overcranking and produces a more realistic look of the two. In 1969, overcranking was only possible with film cameras. It was impossible to be done with video cameras, so Kubrick would have had to use a film camera to capture all this. To achieve the slow motion effects, Kubrick would have then had to transfer the footage to video using a magnetic disc recorder, which of course did exist. And while you could do this, at the time you could only do this to 30 seconds of real-time footage at a time. This would yield only 90 seconds of footage because remember you have to slow it down as well. And the Apollo 11 footage lasts about 143 minutes. To capture that amount of slow motion video, Kubrick would have needed to record and store 47 minutes of live action on video, a technological feat that was not possible in 1969. But sure, let's say Kubrick found a way and overcranked the footage and did all of this stuff. To film 47 minutes of live footage at 30 frames per second and then convert it to 143 minutes at 10 frames per second, over 5,000 feet of film would have been needed. The reels would have then needed to be sliced together and transferred on video. This gargantuan feat would have needed to be accomplished without any scratches to the film negative occurring and also ensure an absence of film grain or other common film messer uppers from becoming visible on the footage. If they did, the hoax would have been easily exposed. There is none of this on any of that footage. Kubrick would also have had to repeat that process without mistakes for five more lunar missions that were all filmed by NASA. Those later missions were also shot at a higher frame rate, meaning twice as much work if they were going to commit more forgery. Still not convinced? Well, studio lighting in 1969 was not advanced enough to create the moon landing images in the manner in which we see them. Studio lighting from a nearby spotlight back then would create diverging shadows, while the light in the moon landing video is parallel and undiffused. Creating a lighting rig to mimic that look back in 1969 would have cost almost as much as the Apollo missions. Not really, but it would have been spendy as hell. They would have also more than likely had to use red laser light to achieve it, as that was the only color of laser light available enough in 1969, which means that color photos would have been impossible as the light would have been red. Photoshop was not advanced enough at this time to color correct sufficiently enough to hide that, so the color photos on the moon landings that we do have would not have been able to exist. And yes, you can say that they painted them, but you can still tell when they paint photographs. There's still telltale signs. These images were clearly captured in color. Further, dozens of individuals have debunked the moon landing conspiracies over the years. The Soviet Union, who had the most skin in the game for disproving the moon landings, verified the achievement, as did multiple other countries with space programs or the tech to use telescopes that were strong enough to see the moon landing sites. You can also still see the moon landing site through strong telescopes, so that's pretty much that. And then you're like, but I saw those Kubrick moon landing images that came out like a few months ago. Those are AI and they look like AI. Just they're not real. Somebody was just screwing around with AI. 
So with all that in mind, Kubrick very likely had no hand in faking the moon landings because we went to the moon. Was it super lucky that nobody died? Absolutely. They used less computing power than what is in your smartphone that you are probably listening to this through. But we also got those technological advancements because of programs like this. It just it's a buildup of everything else. I don't think it's super controversial to state that the U.S. for sure went to the moon and that Kubrick was not involved with any cover up to hide that we didn't. However, there will always be those who believe that Kubrick was involved in the moon landing and that everything that was done to hide this fact is just smoke and mirrors. that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out anyway, I very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee. I have been just chugging homemade coffee all day today because I did not sleep well because I was stressed about my garbage disposal. But that's good now. So I should sleep like a baby tonight, hopefully. Um, I've also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. Next week, we're going into some of the most popular films that some believe the productions of were cursed. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.